Hi, I'm Trent Brown. You're listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. Today we're joined by Bunker Roy, who in 1972 founded the Barefoot College. This was a project that started in Telonia village in Rajasthan and had the aim of developing services, education and the self-reliance of rural communities. Since then, the Barefoot College has become a global institution and it's working in more than 1,300 villages worldwide. Today we'll be talking about talking with Bunker about what has made the Barefoot model so successful. So Bunker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So to begin with, could you sum up for us, what are the core features or perhaps the core principles of the Barefoot model? The Barefoot model uh, grew out of a practical experience I had of being an unskilled laborer digging wells in Rajasthan. I see. And when I was digging wells in Rajasthan with very ordinary people uh, from very remote, inaccessible villages, I found that they had such extraordinary knowledge, skills, and wisdom hmm. that no one from the university or colleges were even exposed to. And I was wondering why such incredible knowledge, skills, and wisdom of very ordinary people were not brought into mainstream and why we weren't using this for solving problems in the villages of India. So I thought I'd start a barefoot college only for the poor. What the poor thought would be reflected in the lifestyle and work style of the college. So the Barefoot College believed in simplicity, in austerity, in collective decision-making, and how it was important to consult the very poor people in plans, in projects, and programs that were supposed to be directed at them. So that was what the initial idea was of the Barefoot College. Right. So could you give some examples of that, of how local people's knowledge could be sort of built into the way that uh, a project functions? For instance, drinking water. If you ask the engineers of the world, including India, what they did for drinking water, they said, why didn't you dig, drill tube wells and take water out of the ground and go deeper and deeper and take more water out of the ground? So when we went to the poor man in the village and said, what did you do for drinking water? He said, my grandfather and my great-grandfathers collected rainwater. So why aren't we collecting more rainwater than taking more water out of the ground? That was people's technology Mm. as against professional technology of Mm. the engineers. So we shifted our focus and priorities to collecting rainwater. And we believed that collecting rainwater was much more profitable, much more sustainable, much more inexpensive then collecting, then drilling deep tubers, exorbitant cost. And at the end of the day, if there was, um, the monsoon wasn't good, then the wells would dry up. Mm. So why, why go deeper and deeper and use modern sophisticated technology when you could collect rainwater on a large scale? Mm. So in 1990, we shifted our policy and priority to collecting only rainwater. And we always consulted the people in the village to find out what their solutions were before we went to the urban expert. And I guess that really illustrates how important sustainability is to the model that you've developed. Um, in what other ways is sustainability embedded? I think it's all work? common sense. Yeah. 
you don't abuse the sun, you don't abuse the earth, you don't abuse the rain, you don't abuse the the water. And this you learn from very simple people, how they live simply. And I think this is what needs to be adopted on a grand, on a grand scale. It's not it's not what Barefoot College is doing. It's what Barefoot College has been doing, listening to the people on the ground. Mm. What is a sustainable long-term solution? Right, what they've already been doing. For hundreds of years. And I understand the participation of women is especially important. Very important because we make a mistake by only investing in men. Because the men leave. Once they get some sort of skill, they leave the village looking for a job in a city. And then they send money home. And all the skills that you have uh, imparted to these people through training programs get lost. So you're training someone who never is in the village ever. So why train men at all? Mm. So we came up with this very innovative solution of training women, uh, middle-aged women, Mm. not young women who would get married and go off, but middle-aged women who would uh, uh, have the... uh, confidence and competence to be able to provide a sophisticated service in the village itself. And they're not interested in leaving. They want to be close to their grandchildren, to their soil, to the animals. Mm. So that's a win-win situation for us. We believe that the woman is going to be the future change agent of the world. Right. And you're you're actually training women in all kinds of sophisticated tasks, am I right? Like- we are actually training women to be solar engineers. Wow. Could you tell us a little about that project? We train women who have never been to school and college. Mm-hmm. We train women who have to be illiterate. We train women who have never been outside the village in their lives. And we train women who have been endorsed and... Uh, and approved by the whole community. And these women are flown to the Barefoot College from all over the world. And this uh, cost is covered by the government of India. And these women, through sign language, not the written or spoken word, become solar engineers in six months. Mm. And they know more about solar engineering than any graduate after five years of university. Uh, Truly inspiring. Now, just to clarify, you're saying that the women who you involve actually have to be illiterate to be part of the program. Yes, because we're trying to prove a point. Hmm. The point is that just because someone doesn't know how to read and write, we should not penalize him or her. Where is it written that just because you can't read and write, you can't become a solar engineer or you can't become an architect or you can't become a communicator, designer, health worker? Uh, that no, uh, and we shouldn't penalize people just because they can't read and write. So we are trying to prove a point, saying that don't be, don't feel inferior, don't feel second class just because you can't read and write. You have tremendous knowledge and skills of people because you can't read and write. So what? Mm. And I suppose that also shows some of the failures of the mainstream education system. Correct, and I think the people who are over-educated sometimes don't have the capacity and the courage to be able to do something that brings change. And it's the illiterate people who I believe in who are going to bring change. Perhaps could you tell us a bit about how Gandhi has influenced your work? Gandhi's message was very powerful. And Gandhi's message is very simple. It says, if you are trying to work with the very poor, you must consult the very poor. You must not ever take them for granted and not ever underestimate them. 
and they have the knowledge, skills, and wisdom, as I told you about, to be able to take their own, to be able to identify their own problems and offer their own solutions. So we believe that the Gandhian approach is the bottom-up approach, mm. whereas the professional World Bank, UN approach is top-down. Someone has been to Harvard, someone has been to Cambridge, someone has done some courses in poverty and we believe that they have the answers to this problem and this is not true. It's the people on the ground who knows what these solutions are like. So there's never been an urban solution to a rural problem. It has to be a rural solution to a rural problem. And this was what Gandhi's message was all about. So some people these days regard Gandhi's philosophy as being antiquated, that it's no longer relevant for the modern world. How do you respond to those sort of claims? Ridiculous. Gandhi's message is universal. Gandhi's message is a sustainable, simple solution. If you can't take the people into confidence with all your programs, nothing is going to work. And all over the world, this has been proven to be a fact. Mm. If you can't involve the people for the programs which are supposed to be for them, if you can't involve them and you, and you bring someone from outside, it is never going to work, period. Mm. And we found this not only in India, but all over the world, in the developing world. We've been to 80 countries in the least developed countries around the world, south of the equator. And we've always found that where the people have been involved, it's been strong, it's been healthy, it's been sustainable, and it's been alive because people own the process. The management, control, and ownership of any project must be in the hands of the communities and not the expert. Mm. If that is assured and guaranteed, no question that the project will be alive and well. Uh, I mean, more specifically, uh, not just the current government, but also the previous government have signaled that they want to see more people in India move from the countryside into the cities. Do you think that this is sort of a threat to that Gandhian vision of sort of village Swaraj and Yes, Gandhi said India lives in its villages and you can't compromise that. Even today, the poorest of the poor in India live in villages and you have to make sure that you improve the quality of life of people who are living in villages so that you reverse migration. Migration is not a solution. Migration is a problem. You have to make sure that people stay back in the villages. You give them work with, with dignity and uh, self-respect. They will always stay. We have found that wherever we have solar electrified, inaccessible, non-electrified villages, people from the slums in cities have come back to the village because they improved the quality of life has improved. They've started small businesses. They've started more schools with solar. All this has happened because we have improved the quality of life. And you cannot compromise on that. Now, one of the challenges that often comes up in rural development projects is what they refer to as elite capture. Basically, the well-to-do sections of the village end up capturing the main benefits of the project and the, the poorest of the poor sort of get excluded. Is that something you've come up against in your work? Always. We um, deliberately, consciously uh, target the very poor. And if your organization is strong and stable and it has a very good foundation, you can always, always uh, 
follow a policy where you build in a conflict situation. Hmm. If everyone is for your project, there's something wrong. Right. There has to be someone who objects, okay. someone who gets hurt, hmm. someone who says this is not a good program. So if it's the politician, if it's the money lender, if it's the small petty businessmen who are objecting, you're on the right track. Uh-huh, very interesting. Yeah. So if the Barefoot College has a program for drinking water, we will always locate the drinking water source in the poorer parts of the village without consulting the political powers that be. Mm-hmm. If you want to locate a night school, you want to have a training program for women, we'll always take the scheduled caste, scheduled tribe women to be able to come to be a part of this program. And there's a built-in conflict situation and attention there. But we think that this is good mm. because it's only through conflict that you bring in change, mm. fundamental change. Right. And I think this is incorporated into every program of the Barefoot College today. Wow. Now, these days, obviously, the Barefoot College is no longer just an Indian phenomenon. It's, it's gone worldwide. Could you tell us a bit about how you've taken these principles to rural communities throughout the world? We have an extraordinary collaboration with the government of India under something called the India Technical Economic Corporation. And we've been registered and recognized as a training institute since 2008. So since 2008, we have gone to the least developed countries around the world, gone to communities which are non-electrified, which have no electricity and not likely to get for the next 20 years. And we have consulted the community and said, look, How much are you paying for lighting, for kerosene, for candles, for torch batteries? And they say they are paying about $10. So we say, if we bring in solar light for you, are you prepared to pay $10? The same amount as you already pay for kerosene. Yes. Are you prepared to give us a place where we can have a workshop? Yes. Are you prepared to have a committee to contribute $10 and collect it every month? Yes. Are you prepared to select a woman who is between 35 and 50, who is illiterate, who's never been outside a village in her life, and are you prepared to send her to Barefoot College for six months? Ah, not a good idea. We like to think about this because we have so many young men in this village who need to come. He said, no, we, the government of India's policy is only women should be coming. So, ah, all right, so... They get into a huddle and then they select the woman. You have to drag the woman screaming onto the plane because she hates the idea of going for six months away from a house, from a family. And she lands up, never been on a plane in her life, lands up in India, strange food, strange country, strange language, strange people, and she can't speak her language for six months. And she goes into a room where there are 40 other women just like her. Grandmothers just like her, from Syria, from Somalia, from Congo, from the, from the Pacific, all sitting on one table. And she wonders, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and that is always the first reaction for these 40 women who sit in that place for six months. They come as grandmothers and go back like tigers. They picked up. Solar, they're the first and only solar engineers of their country. And we have been to 80 countries around the world and selected over 800 grandmothers and not one failure. All of them are the first and only women solar engineers of that country. 
And all this is underwritten by the government of India. A lot of the um, ideas that we've been talking about, about involving local people and uh, utilising local knowledge, some of them have become quite mainstream now. I mean, we've been talking about participatory development for since the 1980s. Um, still, most initiatives that seek local involvement haven't been as successful as the Barefoot College. So I'm wondering, you've witnessed a, a lot of initiatives around the world now. Are there some classic mistakes that development workers make that sort of can you know, undermine their effectiveness? The classic mistake that all development planners, international donor agencies make is underestimate the capacity and competence of very poor people to take their own decisions. You don't need an expert from outside to do that. The first thing the so-called expert must do is to shut his mouth and listen. Just listen to what people have to say. Mm. You have to have the patience, the tolerance, and the humility to learn and listen. This is a big mistake people make. The arrogance is unbelievable with some of these experts who come, mm. and they always make this mistake. They write voluminous reports which don't make, make any sense. No one implements it, and it is doomed to fail, and they know it's going to fail. Mm. And when they know it's going to fail, they're going to blame the rural poor and say, look, these people never consulted, these people never cooperated, and that's why it failed. Mm. This always happens. They are not in a position to change their own way of working and thinking, and this is built in to every fund, every donor agency and funding agency, the mindset has not changed since the 1950s. And it is doomed. We can, we can mark any World Bank project anywhere in the world and go one year after the project is completed, there's nothing there. Mm. There's nothing there. And it hasn't worked. So why are we doing the, making the same mistakes all the time? We can't manage to make the people listen. So you feel like that attitude is still very current of elitism. Institutional. It's institutional. Mm, hopefully we can move beyond it. I hope. I hope we can show some successful projects with the government of Australia or with the government. Just show an, another way is possible. There is an alternative way, but you have to give it the time and space to make it work. Yeah. So it seems like the aim of your work then is to build the capacity of local people to run the entire project for themselves. One thing I'm curious about, though, is what happens to you after, after people have taken over? I mean, how has your role evolved over time? I'm dispensable. In my lifetime, I'm dispensable. I have an extraordinary woman called Megan Fallon, who is the CEO of Brayford College International, who's taken over the international operations and the Indian operations and made and improved on it because my way of working and my way of thinking has been outdated now. It's now has to, I mean, the language has changed, the way people think has changed, the way pe the expectations have changed, the donors have changed, the number of people who are giving money has, uh, has uh, decreased. So you're applying for the same grant for the, lots of people and so she has actually professionalized the whole organization and brought in some very good young people and changed the whole face of the organization, which is good. We are still Gandhian, but we are still very professional. I see. And the professionalism she has brought in very... And she's a New Zealander, so hmm. I, we have great hopes of now. Right. So your involvement these days is quite minimal. I don't uh, involve myself in all her decisions, but I do oversee some... Um, parts of a program where she takes 
but she doesn't understand the Indian psyche. The Indian psyche is very important when you bring in an Indian organization. So I put in that Indian psyche bit, which he <laughs> takes with difficulty. Right, very interesting. I mean, certainly some fantastic lessons and insights there. How can our listeners keep informed about the Barefoot College and the work that you're doing? I would be very interested if someone saw the TED Talk. There's a TED Talk on learning from the Barefoot Movement. Okay. I would like people to see that because that shows how the Barefoot College started and how we've expanded. And we have a website, thebarefootcollege.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do receive a lot of vil- uh, volunteers. If someone wants to volunteer, you're open to that. It's on the website. So we'll be very keen to get some people from Australia. Interesting part was that I've been to Australia several times and I've said I want to take an Aboriginal woman from Australia to the Barefoot College. That would be fantastic. We haven't been able to get any. Hmm, Interesting. So if there's anyone who's listening to this, this comes from a non-electrified community in Australia, very remote, and they want to send an Aboriginal woman, please let us know. Hopefully someone will come forward about that. Bunker, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's all for the afternoon Adda today. See you next time. Can I have my tea now? (laughs) 